The Bible is indestructible because it does not have a human origin. The Bible is revealed truth. It's not research truth. It's disclosed truth. It's not discovered truth. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, please open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. How many of you were at the 8 o'clock service this morning? Yeah, if you haven't been, you need to go at 11 o'clock. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. We live in a church family where the Word of God is lifted up and preached, and it's a great, great, great blessing. The story is told that a new minister was asked to teach a boys' Sunday school class. He asked the boys who had knocked down the walls of Jericho. Every one of them denied having done it. He was appalled at their lack of Bible knowledge and shared his concerns at the next deacon's meeting. One deacon said, Pastor, this seems to be bothering you a lot. However, I've known these boys since they were born. They're good boys, and if they said they didn't do it, I believe them. Let's just take some money out of the repair and maintenance fund, fix the walls, and let it go at that. Today we're going to study the origin and value of the Bible itself in the context of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. Most of you know these verses probably by heart. Let me give you the context. Paul is near the end of his life. Nero the emperor has, he's slowly going insane. He set fire to Rome in AD 64. He needed the scapegoat. He blames the Christians for the fire and begins to persecute and kill large numbers of Christians. Paul is rearrested by the Roman authorities in about AD 67. So that's the context of this particular passage. He's confined in the Manor Time prison in Rome, which is really just an underground dungeon. He's chained. It's dark. It's dank. It's cold. And he knows that his death is very near. Only Luke, the physician, is with him. So he's all alone except for Luke. So he writes this last letter, he's probably within weeks of death, to Timothy, the second letter of Timothy, his son in the faith, who is pastoring the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is a church, very large church, third largest city in the empire, about 175,000 people, very, very oppositional to the gospel. So Timothy is encountering a lot of opposition in his pastoring that particular church, and Paul writes this letter to Timothy and encourages him to be a good soldier for Jesus Christ and endure suffering. Paul knows that Timothy is going to continue to encounter opposition as he brings the gospel to the city of Ephesus and as he pastors that church. The church in Ephesus has got internal troubles. There's a lot of false teachers in the church that are preaching really a humanistic gospel of works that oppose the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. So Paul exhorts Timothy, you keep preaching the word of God, period, end of story. God's word is the foundation upon which Christians build their lives. So Paul is going to tell Timothy two things that we're going to look at today. 
one, what God's word is, and two, what God's word does. And here's the key idea. Because the Bible is God's word, it is completely true and absolutely trustworthy. Because the Bible is God's word, it is completely true and absolutely trustworthy. <clears throat> God's word, the Bible, is unique. It's one of a kind, and it's superior to any other book written. One of the evidences of that is the unity of the scripture. The unity of the Bible demonstrates its supernatural origin. Consider that the Bible was written over about a 1,500-year period, beginning with Moses, about 1440 B.C., and ending with the Apostle John, who wrote Revelation in about 95 A.D. So the Bible was written over about 1,500-plus years. It was written by over 40 human authors. There are more than 40, a little over 40 human authors, depending on who wrote the book of Hebrews, in Scripture. These human authors, some of them were kings, some of them were military generals. Some of these authors were peasants, philosophers, fishermen, a medical doctor, Luke, a tax gatherer, Matthew, statesmen, Daniel, farmers, Amos, scholars, shepherds, 40 different authors over 1,500 years. The Bible was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. The Bible contains multiple literary styles. You'll see prose in the Bible. You'll see poetry. You'll see historical narrative. You'll see prophecy. You'll see allegory. You'll see parable. You'll see biography, law, even a romance, Book of Ruth. The Bible speaks to the human condition in all of its complexity, and yet the central theme of the Scriptures is always the same. It's God himself and how human beings can have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So the Bible was written by 40 authors over 1,500 years. Tremendous internal consistency, 100% agreement between these authors, even though many of them had no idea anybody else existed because they wrote based on what God told them alone. Secondly, consider the indestructibility of the Bible. The Bible has been hated by Satan from the beginning and his world system. And the Bible has not only thrived, survived, but thrived. The battle over God's word began in Genesis 3. When Satan attacked God's word, when he asked Eve, Indeed, has God said? That battle over the Bible has been raging from the time of Adam and Eve, and it will continue to rage until Jesus Christ comes the second time. Satan will always attack your faith in the authenticity and the authority of the Word of God. And he will always try and create doubt in your mind about the authority of the Scripture. God's people have been attacked and murdering for following and teaching God's Word ever since Cain killed Abel. The Bible has been ignored, banned, burned, ridiculed, and mutilated to no avail. The Bible is not only indestructible, it's transformational. In the last six and a half thousand years of recorded history, it has transformed the lives of millions of people century by century by century. Jesus promised in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away. By the way, you're part of that heaven and earth. You're going to pass away too. But my words will never pass away. So God's word 
is our subject of our conversation today, and it will outlive the physical universe itself, and it will certainly outlive all its critics. God has a solution for people that oppose him. He outlives them. The Bible is indestructible. Yeah, it takes a while for you to... <clears throat> Caffeine, anyone? The Bible is indestructible because it does not have a human origin. The Bible is revealed truth. It's not researched truth. It's disclosed truth. It's not discovered truth. You know, we can discover facts about the physical universe using our five senses and our mind, our intelligence. Based on the facts we can observe and measure, we form hypotheses about what they mean. For example, our Milky Way galaxy, one galaxy has about 100 billion stars in it. That's a big number. That's one galaxy. The Hubble telescope has discovered about 100 billion galaxies in the universe. So far, we infer that that might be about half of the number of galaxies, but we keep finding more and more and more. So 100 billion stars in one galaxy, about 100 billion galaxies we know about so far. The universe is estimated to be about 93 billion light years in diameter, and it's expanding all the time. It's getting bigger. So when the human mind encounters that, the scale, the complexity, and the order in the physical universe that we can measure demands an explanation, right? What is the origin of the universe? Where did it come from? Matter and energy are not eternal, right? They had to have a start someplace. Something cannot come from nothing because Julie Andrews told me that in The Sound of Music, right? <laughs> Those of you remember the song? Complex order requires intelligence, design, and purpose. I'm amused that a number of years ago we had a movement in the United States called Intelligent Design, and the amount of opposition that it created was remarkable, as if organization and order and vast complexity could come about by random chance. That thing you're wearing on your hip or in your purse, that smartphone, it's a fraction of what your brain is, not even on the same scale, and no one says it came about by random chance, plus billions of years. Steve Jobs and the rest of the team at Apple put thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours into the design and the execution of something as dumb as a smartphone. And you are wearing a computer above your neck that is remarkably um, complex. Most complex material in the known universe is about your three-and-a-half-pound brain. Psalm 19 speaks of this truth in this, in this form. Psalm 19.1. The heavens, that's the galaxies, are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day-to-day -day pours forth speech, and night-to-night -night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. So the most obvious evidence that God exists is his creation. What the physical universe tells us about God, we call that general revelation. That's just occurs to anybody. When you go outside, you open your eyes, and you see the sun, or you go out at night, and you open your eyes, and you see the stars. They're talking to you. There's a message by their existence, their number, their size, their scale, their scope. Now, the created universe doesn't use verbal language. I mean, it's not using English or anything like that. 
but it is speaking of the glory of God. It shows us the power of God. But what the physical creation cannot do is tell us about the person of God or the plan of God. That we call special revelation because God is a spirit and we can't discover him through a telescope or a microscope. For us to know God personally, God has to disclose himself to us. He takes the initiative to reveal himself to us and he has done that precisely as he promised through special revelation. Hebrews 1.1 discusses this and it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. In 1968, Francis Schaeffer uh, wrote a book called He is There and He is Not Silent. If you've never read that book, it is fabulous. I have a corollary to that. He is there and he has not silent. He has spoken and he has not stuttered. That's the Brad piece of that. God never stutters. He speaks extraordinarily clearly when he tells us about himself. We use the word, the Bible is revealed truth. The Bible is revealed truth. Re revelation means to unveil, like pull the curtains back on a stage. You unveil a stage, right, to see the show that's going on. So it means to reveal or unveil something that you previously couldn't see. It means to disclose something you previously didn't know. And Hebrews 1 says, God long ago spoke to the fathers. He's talking about the Old Testament revelation. He says, God spoke to the Old Testament prophets in many books, many portions. That's what he's talking about. The Old Testament contains how many books? 39 books. Somebody's read it. It contains the Pentateuch, the first five. Yes, Stuart. Uh, the historical books, the books of poetry, prophecy, and so forth. Not only did God speak in many books, he spoke in many ways to people. He spoke through visions. He spoke through prophecies. He speaks through parables in the Old Testament. He uses symbols like the, the Ark of the Covenant and the Temple, the Tabernacle. He speaks through ceremonies. God spoke through people, sometimes through visible theophanies. They actually saw Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. They thought he was an angel. Sometimes God spoke in audible voices in the Old Testament, right? Still small voice. He spoke to Job through the whirlwind. Sometimes he spoke through angels. Sometimes he spoke through dreams. So God is a revealing God. God wants to be known. He wants his people to know him. And when we look at the Old Testament, he spoke through lots of different books in lots of different ways over long periods of time. So God is a revealing God. He even wrote some of his word on a tablet of stone. We call that the Ten Commandments. And once he even spoke through a donkey. He can speak through a donkey. He can speak through bread, right? Yeah, that's a, yeah, no problem. <coughs> There's always one in every crowd. I've always appreciated Rob's self-control. The Old Testament reveals who God is. And the Old Testament tells us very important things about God. It tells us that God is holy and that he desires righteousness in people. It tells us that God hates sin and loves holiness. The Old Testament tells us that God blesses those who obey him and disciplines those who disobey him. The Old Testament tells us that God is not only an infinite God, but he's a personal God. He wants a relationship 
with his people. So the Old Testament is God speaking to people in many portions and in many ways. And the writer of Hebrews says the New Testament is speaking to us in one all-encompassing way, and that is through God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Gospels, of course, record what Jesus said and did when he was on earth, and the rest of the New Testament records the meaning and the purpose of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and his second coming. So, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know the character, the conduct of who God is, study the life of Christ. What does Scripture tell us about Jesus? Hebrews 1.3 And He, Christ, is the radiance of His glory, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of God's nature. Colossians 1.15 he, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 2.9, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So Jesus is God in the flesh, visible, personal. God sent his son to earth because God loves people. Have you ever wondered why he would bother. When you look around, you think, Lord, you obviously love in ways I don't love because I don't see a whole lot of value here. Just saying. But God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his only begotten son. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins, which separate us from God. But Jesus also came to show people what God was like. The Bible is the record of God's revealing self to the human race. Now, we're going to talk about the Bible specifically at this point in time and the content of the Bible. I want you to know why you should trust the Bible. The content of the Bible, the message of the Bible is what we call revelation. That's God revealing truth to us. The process by which that content was written down and recorded, we call inspiration. And that's what Paul's talking about here in 2 Timothy 3, 16. And Paul says, all Scripture is inspired by God. Not very many words, a huge amount of meaning. And I'm going to corollary that with 2 Peter 1, 20. Peter says, in essence, the same thing. Peter says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one owns interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. There are three things about Scripture that are imperative that we understand. Here's the principle. The Bible is inspired. Every word came from God. Two, the Bible is infallible, which means it's incapable of failure. And number three, the Bible is inerrant. It is without error. So the Bible is inspired. Every word came from God. The Bible is infallible. It's incapable of failure. And number three, the Bible is inerrant. It is without error. Norman Geisler, a, a Christian apologist, died just died this year, has said that the Christian faith rests on three legs, just like a stool. And these three legs are inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy. Now, inspiration deals with the origin of the Bible. And the Bible itself says that the text is God-breathed. So God literally breathed out the words of the Bible using human writers as his vehicle. 
If you want to know what God thinks, he wrote it down. If you want to know the mind of God, which is an amazing phenomenon to think about, how could you understand what God thinks? He tells you what he thinks. He wrote it down. We can't discover the mind of God ourselves. He revealed it, and he says, now that I've revealed it, I want you to study. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Study to show yourself approved to God. So the inspiration is the origin of Scripture. God himself is the origin. Number two, infallibility really speaks about the authority of the Word of God, the enduring nature of the Word of God. To be infallible means that something is incapable of failing. I wish my car was infallible. It is not infallible. It needs a lot of maintenance. The Bible is permanently binding, and the Bible cannot be broken. Jesus Christ himself said in John 10, 34, the scriptures cannot be broken. What that means is every single thing that the Bible says will take place, does take place. Because you cannot break scripture because it's the word of God. And number three, inerrancy means that the Bible was, is without error. The word errant comes from the, the Latin, E-N-A-R-A-R-A, -E -R -R -A -R -A, and it means to wander. When you say the Bible is inerrant, it means the Bible never wanders from the truth. The Bible never gets lost, right? The Bible never gets, has to backtrack. The Bible never wanders from the truth because it is truth. God's word is totally truthful, completely reliable, and it cannot fail and is without any error regarding any statement. And you can build your life on this foundation. 1 Peter 1.20 says, No prophecy ever came about by the will of man. When he's talking about prophecy, he's talking about the contents of Scripture. He's talking about the, uh, uh, the message of Scripture. And he said it's not subject to one's own interpretation. What he's saying is this book did not come from a human origin. This book is not the result of human research, human brilliance, human investigation, or human scholarship. The Bible is not the creation of humans, but men were moved or carried along or born along or brought along or conveyed along by the Holy Spirit. The word picture here is you're on a sailboat and you lift your sails on the sailboat into the wind and the Holy Spirit is the wind and the wind blows the sailboat along, right? So the wind carries the sailboat along. Now you have sailors on board the ship and they put up the sail, but they don't control the wind. The Holy Spirit is the wind, and He is in control of this. So in the same way that a, the wind will fill the sails and move the boat along, the Holy Spirit filled the men that He chose to write and carried them along according to His will and His purposes. They were supernaturally inspired and enabled to write God's Word. Now, God used them individually. Each one of the writers had their own circumstances, backgrounds, personalities, temperaments, experiences, and yet every single word is the Word of God. Charles Ryrie has defined inspiration using these words. God's superintendence of human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to humanity in the words of the original autographs. Now, when we use the word, we say the Bible is inspired. 
it came from God. There's a lot of non-biblical definitions of inspiration. So when you're talking to people, you need to know what we're talking about. When someone says inspired, one way you could read that is what we call natural inspiration. And there are people who say, well, the Bible's inspired, but he's inspired in the same way that Shakespeare was inspired or, or Beethoven was inspired, right? They're just, they're just, the Bible's composed by religious geniuses, right? Human geniuses. Well, human geniuses may be profoundly deep, but they're not divine, right? Inspired people speak human words. This book is God's word. There is an infinite gap between human words and God's word because God is infinite and humans are not. So natural inspiration does not explain Scripture. A second faulty way of looking at inspiration is what we call spiritual illumination. There are those who claim that both the words and people are inspired. What that means is that any devout Christian can be inspired to write more scripture. And you and I know that once you follow cult leaders, almost all of them say, God inspired me. I got a word from the angel, right? And so they're going to add to the scriptures. They believe that they are inspired to write more scriptures. The Bible knows nothing about inspired people. Only inspired words. No biblical writer, none of these 40, was inspired as a person so they could write more scripture whenever they chose to. The only scripture they wrote is what God breathed into them. And they only wrote down what he told them to when he told them to. Beyond that, they were speaking human words, not God's word. So there is no extra biblical revelation. We, go, we don't get to add to this book, and we don't get to subtract from this book. And if you want to know what happens, read the last chapter of Revelation, and God will tell you. If you add to this, I'm going to add to you the plagues of Egypt. And you subtract to it, I'm going to subtract your place in the Lamb's book of life. So be careful about adding or subtracting to God's word. God says what he means and means what he says, and he does not need our help. Right? Number three, another faulty view of inspiration called divine dictation. God spoke, and these 40 writers just took down shorthand. God just needed the body to hold the pen and, and write, and anybody could have hold that pen and done it. Now, we know that's not true because God used each writer's individual personality and experience in their writing. That's why when you read Peter, Peter doesn't sound like Paul at all. I mean, when you read what they wrote, they're completely different styles. And Isaiah doesn't sound at all like Amos. They're both prophets, but I mean, they're comprehensively different personalities. Paul was a scholar with the equivalent of two PhDs. Peter didn't even get out of grammar school. I don't think he ever went to grammar school. He was an uneducated fisherman. And yet God spoke through both men to say exactly what he chose to say. Isaiah was very much an influential upper crust uh, Israelite born uh, connected to kings. Amos was a shepherd, and yet God used both of them. And their personalities are reflected in their writings. So Scripture has 40 different authors, very different personalities, very different experiences, and God superintended their background, their experiences, so that their individuality came out, but the very Word of God was spoken through them. Everything it says in the Bible came from God. Another faulty view of inspiration. 
it says partial inspiration. This is the faulty view that the Bible is inspired only when it speaks to areas like religion or faith or spiritual matters. However, the Bible is not authoritative when it speaks about science, historical matters, geographical facts, or mathematical facts. What this view says is that sometimes God breathed out truth, and sometimes God breathed out error. Now, partial inspiration is a direct attack on God himself, since God himself claims the whole scripture came from me. So if there's error in this scripture, God then is also a God of error. And we know that that is not true. The Bible is truthful when it speaks about anything it chooses to speak about. If the Bible's not truthful when it speaks about physical matters, the creation among other things, then it's certainly not trustworthy when it speaks about spiritual matters. The, the liberal theological community is filled with people that say, well, I believe what the Bible says about salvation, I just don't believe what the Bible says about creation. And you're telling me, Mr. or Mrs. Theologian, that you're smart enough to know the difference. In other words, humanity then judges the Bible. Guess what? Humanity doesn't judge the Bible. The Bible judges us. Because this is absolute truth. This is the standard of measure by which all things are judged. Because God is the creator and we are the creation. The last faulty view is conceptual illustration, conceptual inspiration. And this says that the concepts of the Bible are inspired, but not the very words. So God gave one of these authors an idea, and they wrote down what they thought about that idea God gave them. Well, I don't know about you, but I've never been able to communicate literary thoughts without using words. I'm a recovering musician. And I assure you, there is no melody without musical notation or musical punctuation, okay? Ezekiel 3, <clears throat> 10. Moreover, God said to me, Son of man, take into your heart all my words, which I will speak to you and listen closely. Go to the exiles, the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not, Thus says the Lord God. God speaks using precisely the words he wants to communicate, exactly what he wants to communicate to precisely the people he wants to communicate it to. By the way, God never gives sinful human beings editorial privilege over his word. He never says you can make it up as you go along. He never says you can interpret this any way you want. God says exactly what he means and means exactly what he says. Our job is not to edit it. Our job is real simple. Believe it and obey it because it came from God himself. So Paul says all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture means all. Every single word. We believe in verbal inspiration. The very words came from God's mouth. We believe in plenary inspiration. That's a very fancy term that says complete, entire, 100%. All of the Bible is inspired by God. Every single word, every single place name, every single event. Matthew 5, Jesus said exactly that. Jesus said, do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For 
Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, in the old King James, it says, not one jot or one tittle. That is literally the crossing of the T and the dotting of the I. It's the smallest stroke, the apostrophe mark. There are no extra parts in Scripture. There are no missing parts in Scripture. Every single place, every name, every word, every punctuation mark, the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, believe that the spaces between the words have divine design. I believe that. Every single thing in Scripture is there by divine design. We are not to add to it, subtract to it, distort it, detract from it. We are to trust it, believe it, and obey it. So, you say, well, Brad, you're making some pretty big claims for Scripture. How do we know the Bible really came from God? How do we know it's just not a bunch of human opinion? God authenticates its word using two primary ways. Number one is the fulfillment of prophecy. Predictive prophecy is the, one of the most powerful ways God authenticates its word. God precisely predicts the future in advance and then makes it happen exactly on schedule. So you know that what he says came from him because he made the prediction in advance and controls the future. Isaiah 46, 9, God makes that claim. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there was no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which have not yet been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Let's talk about predictive prophecy. There are approximately 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. Roughly 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled, precisely on schedule. The first coming of the Messiah was foretold a little over 300 times in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you eight prophecies. Eight, only eight out of 300. Number one, Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Number two, Messiah will be preceded by a messenger, Isaiah 43. Number three, Messiah will enter into Jerusalem on a donkey at a precise Date, the day, Zechariah 9.9, Daniel 9.24-27. That prophecy alone will take you out of this universe. Number three, four, five. Messiah will be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41.9. Messiah will be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12. The money will be thrown into the temple and will be used to buy a potter's field, Zechariah 11.13. Messiah will be dumb before his accusers, Isaiah 53, 7. Messiah will die by crucifixion along with thieves, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, 12. Only eight prophecies. What are the odds that any one person could fulfill, out, could fulfill all eight prophecies is one in ten to the 17th power? That's a one with 17 zeros after it. Now, one followed by 15 zeros is a quadrillion. One followed by 17 zeros is 100 million quadrillion. Okay? 100 quadrillion. Let me explain this. Peter Stoner wrote a book in 1963 called Science Speaks, and he gave this illustration. Suppose we take 1 in 10 to the 17th out of 17 zeros, in silver dollars, that's a lot of silver dollars. Matter of fact, that's enough silver dollars to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Now, 
you get to mark one of those silver dollars with a black X, only one, and you stir the whole state, mix them thoroughly. You blindfold a person, and you tell them they can go anywhere in the state they want, and they have to pick up just one silver dollar, and the very first silver dollar they pick up has to be the one with the black X. What are the odds of them getting the right one? Exactly the same odds that eight prophecies would be fulfilled by one person and having them come true in one person from that date to the present time, providing they wrote that in their own wisdom. Those odds are astronomical. Anything beyond that we would call absurd. Science calls that absurd. That's only eight prophecies. There were 300 for the first coming of Christ. The Bible is filled with prophecies. God prophesied Cyrus was going to set Israel free from, the, from captivity 150 years before he was born. And Isaiah 45, he names it by name 150 years prior. I could go on and on and on and on and on. But God authenticates the validity of his word. He demonstrates the divine nature of his word by predictive prophecy. The second way God authenticates his word is through supernatural acts. Miracles. They supersede natural law. The Bible records over 125 miracles. In the Old Testament, God often performed acts through his prophets, the New Testament through Jesus. And the purpose of biblical miracles is to authenticate the divine nature of the message. So when God has a divine message for you, a prophet would come and say, thus says the Lord, and you say, how do I know this prophet speaking the truth? How do I know they're just making up in their own head? Well, God's standard for success in prophecy was 100%. If a prophet made a prophecy and it didn't come true, they were to die. That would stop a lot of stupidity in our culture. If you didn't come true, we, we took you out, right, at that point. But that was God's standard, 100%. There are three major periods of miracles in the Bible. One, Israel's exodus from Egypt. Two, the period of Elijah and Elisha, when the nation was in extreme apostasy, 1st, 2nd Kings. And then thirdly, the time of Jesus' ministry on earth. Miracles, where God supersedes natural law, are designed to prove the divine origin of the message and strengthen the faith in God of those people who are watching. The Apostle John tells us why Jesus did all the miracles he did in the New Testament, John 20, 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John only talked about seven of them. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through his name. So the whole point of God doing miracles, of overriding natural law, is to authenticate that this message, this book, is divine. It is God's word, not man's word, and so that you'll believe it and be saved. So, We've looked at what the Word of God is. It's God's Word. He authenticates it through predictive prophecy. He authenticates it through supernatural miracles. Now I want to talk briefly about what the Word of God does. What's the function of the Word of God does? And Paul says the Word of God does five things that are very important for us to understand. 2 Timothy 3.15, he says, Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are, one, able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, 
And then he goes on in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Here's the principle. The Bible tells us how to be saved, how to know what is right and what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. Those are right out of Warren Wiersbe. So, he says the Bible is useful. The work of the word is profitable. The word profitable here means it's useful. It's beneficial. It's helpful. So, we should study the word because it's profitable. And you say, well, what's it profitable for? Well, number one, salvation. Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The word of God tells us that. The Bible is the most valuable treasure you have on planet Earth because only the Bible tells you how to be saved from the penalty of sin. You know what the penalty of sin is? Eternal separation from God in hell. There is no larger problem that we can ever face and fix than the problem of where we're going to spend eternity because it never ends. One way or the other, you've got a location you're going to spend eternity. Nobody dies. We die physically, but we live forever in some place. The location of where you live, heaven or hell, eternally separated from God or eternally in union with Christ, depends on what we do with what the Bible says through Jesus Christ. So the, only the Bible tells us how we can have a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ and live forever in heaven. So salvation is the greatest gift you ever will receive, bar none, because it's eternal. Number two, what else does the Bible do? The Bible teaches us what is right. Now, your scripture might, your Bible might say teaching or doctrine. 1 Peter 1.16 says, what's right? You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's God speaking. God himself is the standard for what is right. And that standard is called holiness. Teaching here, or doctrine, is not the process of teaching. It, it, it's the content of what is being taught. Doctrine or teaching here is the subject matter. It's God's thoughts that make up the Bible. Um, God's Word is really the instruction manual for life. I once knew um, a person who didn't bother to change the oil in her car uh, until it turned to jello. And the engine was ruined. And apparently she was too busy to read the owner's manual. Now you would look at that and say, we would not call that wise. right? Not reading the instruction manual, ruin an engine. It's like picking up a prescription from the pharmacy and not bothering to read how much you should take or how often you should take it. There are people that really do that. They pick up their prescription and take what they think they should take. And they stop taking when they think they should stop taking it. That would not be a good recipe. You can overdose doing that kind of stuff, right? Here's the point. Read the instruction manual. It was written by God who created you. So here would be a really basic question. Why would you want, not want to know what your creator had to say about how to live life in the universe that he created? Well, doesn't that seem rational? You would want to read the instruction manual. The Bible is the roadmap for life. It's the way to heaven. When you refuse to follow God's instructions, you know what happened? 
we make the wrong turns over and over and over. How many of you know people that keep making the same mistakes over and over and over? You're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. This, and, and it's like, is there no learning from the pain? And you would say, well, apparently not. Well, here's the solution. If you read the directions up front, you don't have to get lost and get beat up before you decide to come back to the truth. So God's word not only saves us, God's word tells us what is right. God's word is the instruction manual, tells us how to live. God's word also reproves us. God's word tells us what is not right. Hebrews 4.12. You have all experienced the truth of this verse. Some of you have not wanted to go back as a result of that. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. So the word of God reproves us. The word of God rebukes us. It literally means to confront with something that is not right in order to correct it. So the word of God itself corrects us. The word of God convicts us. Conviction is the process of being exposed to the truth, exposed to the light. Interestingly enough, John, uh, Jesus said that there are people who practice evil, who love sin, who hate the light because they don't want their deeds exposed. The word of God shines the light on our life and it usually reveals sin, right? The word of God does build up, but first it tears down. It exposes our sin. When you read this passage in Hebrews, it's pretty clear the word of God is like a scalpel, like a surgeon's scalpel that literally cuts deeply into our souls and opens us up and exposes our sin to ourselves. How many of you ever seen um, video of a famous criminal being convicted in court of a particular crime, and what do they do once they're convicted? They cover their face, they put their head down, they're trying to hide, right? They're trying to conceal themselves from the consequence of their sin. Now, the Romans had a solution for that. When a Roman prisoner was being marched to their punishment publicly, a Roman soldier would take a dagger and put it right under your chin, like this. And if you dropped your head, it would go right through your chin. It would keep your head up where you had to face the music. You had to face the consequence of your sin. You had to look at it straight in the face. You could not hide your head. God's word is that dagger under our chin. It forces us to face the reality of our sin and makes us face God without hiding or making excuses. Now, exposing sin in our life is painful, but it's necessary. A diagnosis of, a diagnosis of cancer is hard. You know what's worse than getting the diagnosis? Having the cancer without the diagnosis. Because then it grows undetected and non-treated. So it is God's mercy that he uses his word to expose our sin, so then it can be treated. When God uses his word to expose your sin, and I have never read this Bible without in some form feeling bad. 
because my life doesn't measure up. God is exposing sin, and I am learning to thank Him for it because early detection saves lives. So God saves us. God tells us what is right. God tells us what is not right. And then God tells us how to get right. And that's the process of correction, how to get right. That's the four things that the God of, Word of God does for us. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is what? That's a conditional promise. He's faithful and just to forgive if you apply obedience to the first part. So reproof exposes sin. That's God opening us up with His Word. Correction fixes it. Correction literally means to rebuild, to restore. It's an orthopedic term, and it literally means to straighten somebody who's bent over upright, to an upright posture. So the Word of God not just opens us up, it straightens us up to an upright process. It restores us. The Bible will never expose your sin and leave you there in a broken state. Never, 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 never. If God's Word convicts you of pride, it will also tell you how to humble yourself and get right with God. When God's Word breaks your leg, it also sets your leg so that it will be straight. Has God's Word ever broken your leg? Yep. He'll also set it so that it'll heal straight and stronger than before. When God's Word convicts us of sin, that's the process of showing us what's not right, if we confess and repent, then we are restored. God gets us right. God forgives and God heals. He lifts us up and restores our relationship to Him. One of the ways that God corrects us is through pruning. Has your life ever been pruned by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God? Of course. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will produce fruit, which is the whole point. Now, God wants us to bear more fruit, and to order to bear more fruit, he prunes everything in your life that is not bearing fruit. Many of us have a lot of branches in our life that are useless, but we like them. They're comfortable, and God says it's not producing fruit. You're going to regret that in glory because you wasted an enormous amount of your life on non-productive stuff. So God takes his pruning shears and he goes and cuts it off. And we go, man, that's painful. It's better than you be that limb, that direction, that interest, that attachment be cut off, then you carry it with you and waste your life on something that doesn't bear fruit for the glory of the king. So when God prunes your life through his word, thank him for it. It's going to hurt, but God always prunes those he loves. That's called chastening, Hebrews 12. The last thing, God saves us, shows us what is right, what's not right, how to get right. Last thing he does is how to stay right. 1 John 1.7 If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ, keeps on cleansing us from 
all sin. We stay right with God by staying in His Word so we can grow and mature. This whole process of training, it literally is talking about discipline as in training a child. It's moral and mental education. It's the cultivation of godly character and conduct. God uses His Word to mature us and shape us more and more like Jesus. You know, have you ever read the Word and been convicted that you have a long way to go? Yes. Occasionally, it's useful to look back and realize that you have, by God's grace, He has brought you a long way from where you started. But He's not going to stop taking you along the path until you become like Jesus. That's the whole process of training in righteousness. It's maturing us. It's growing us up. It literally means we are to become more and more like Jesus in our attitudes and actions. Because the whole point of discipline in children is to produce maturity. God wants his children to be spiritually mature. He wants them to grow up and be like Jesus Christ. And the way you grow in maturity is through the word. 1 Peter 2.2 Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you don't eat this on a regular basis, you're going to spiritually starve to death. Some people are so spiritually anemic, they run out of gas before they get out the front door. You have to read this and study it. It's food. Moses said it's your life. If you read the Bible every time you fed your face, you would be spiritually unbelievable. I grew up in a home where my parents read the Bible after every meal. I mean, morning, noon, and night, I got it whether I wanted it or not. And they prayed before the meal and after the meal. I guess they looked at me and said, you need it. Those are good disciplines. Those are good disciplines. We need the milk of the word and the meat of the word. Paul says, so if you do this, any Christian, he says man of God, he's talking about any Christian, he says you'll be adequate, you'll be perfect, you'll be mature, you'll complete, you'll be equipped for every good work, which means you'll be outfitted to meet all the demands. You'll be fully equipped for the task at hand, completely prepared for any spiritual eventuality. In summary, the Bible is God's word, it's not human word. It is demonstrably from an extraterrestrial source. This book is an integrated message system. Every word, every place, every period, every punctuation mark has meaning and purpose. God has given it to us. Study it. Know it. It's powerful. It's your life. It's demonstrably from God because it authenticates itself through predictive prophecy, through ongoing miracles, and through changing millions and millions and millions of lives. And it is useful for us to obey. Let's summarize. Because the Bible is God's word, it is completely true and absolutely trustworthy. What God's word is, the Bible is inspired. Every word comes from God. The Bible is infallible. It's incapable of failure. And number three, the Bible is inerrant. It's without error. 
You can trust your life to it, your soul to it. Number two, what does the Word of God do? The Word of God tells us how to be saved, how to know what's right, how to know what's not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. That sounds like a wonderful manual for life. I love you all. Next week, Lord willing, we'll continue in 2 Timothy 4. We'll be talking about the, Paul's last words. And now that you know, yeah. do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.